This is a CW Spiral, a podcast run by two Barchies and a Bughead. We're your hosts, Sabrina Reed, Michael Patterson, and Reed Gowden. Bringing you history about the network, the latest news, and in-depth spoiler-filled discussions of some of our favorite shows on the CW. Welcome back to the CW Spiral podcast, and we have a very special episode because we're celebrating Arrow's 10th anniversary, which of course means that we have to once again say that Marvel TV owes its place to Arrow. We're living in the TV renaissance of superheroes and like we would not be here without the Arrowverse. I've, I will stay on that hill for the rest of my life. It just, it would not have happened. And I feel like it now is the right time to celebrate Arrow. We don't know what the future holds for this universe and it's wild to think it's been 10 years. So um, we'll get into it, but we've done a lot of talking about the future of the Arrowverse, but today I'm happy to celebrate its past. It's exciting. First though, we do have to talk about some news, which this isn't exactly what we wanted in terms of Legends of Tomorrow holiday TV, but they are re-airing Bebo Saves Christmas on Wednesday, December 21st. So if you like that animated short, it's like what, 30 minutes long? Um, and you didn't, and you missed it um, when it aired last Christmas season, you get to watch it this Christmas season. Legends of Tomorrow fans, this is your moment. Tune into it, get those ratings high. Um, no, Bebo Saves Christmas is a lot of fun. Um, it's not exactly arrowverse but like it is it is kind of but um yeah i feel like it's a good thing to help celebrate the holidays and it's like i said everybody loves bebo so tune in legends fans i remember when the news first broke i told you guys i was like what if all the legends fans tune in and the ratings are really high and that makes a case for like legends to like come back in some form and now that we're talking about it i'm thinking like what if it backfires <laughs> everybody <laughs> Everybody tunes in, the ratings are high, and the CW is like, oh, we'll just re-air this every year. <laughs> right? Or like, there's there's like, you know what they love? They love Bebo. So we should just do more Bebo holiday specials. Be- Bebo meets Bebo the animated body. series. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is what you get for putting them on the complete series box set. I mean, I don't know. Exactly. It's, still, it's still worth tuning in. You never know. Even if it does backfire, at least, I don't know. <laughs> Watch True. it. <laughs> watch it and be in their mentions i mean it's been months now right and the save the legends of tomorrow campaign has been going pretty strong mm-hmm. it has and it hasn't really kind of died off or anything um i don't know whether the cw is going to acknowledge it they haven't yet but i mean they're still out here they're still out here fighting and i mean like if they tune into this why not may i propose a new hashtag for the airing of bebo saves christmas oh yes Ooh. hashtag bebo saves legends Ah, ah, we like that. I love <laughs> fl- that. Yeah. And not me being the ringleader of the same legend <laughs> <movement> now. <laughs> you will get credited in every tweet. <laughs> yes. Oh, we have to tweet that soon. That's genius. Yes. Okay. But with the, speaking of like the Arrowverse and like it's ending, even though we're going to celebrate it with um, the our Aeropod, um, we are in like this really weird next star era with the CW where reading, ratings mean everything. And so you would think that next star and Ver- wouldn't get into a dispute with Verizon Fios and like, and then that distribution agreement would close out, expire before they can come to some type of, I guess, compromise. But that wasn't the case. So now nearly 3 million people, well, three million, nearly 3 million Verizon Fios subscribers don't have the CW anymore. Like the channel is just gone. It's unimaginable. Like, what are what's going on? This whole, <laughs> the beginning of this era feels like um, 
it's it feels like mom got a full-time job and she's going back to work so like dad's in charge now so he's like he's like he's like ordering pizza every night he's like not sure what and not to use it like a heteronormative example but like we see it all the time in tv it just feels like what's that's what's going on like dad's kind of like uh, i don't really know what to do like <laughs> <laughs> It's just such a mess, like in such an era where they say ratings are important on the night, we have the higher ups have created a very scenario where ratings can't matter on the night because people can't tune in. They're trying to get the ratings up. And this is the exact cause of why the ratings have already started to fall. Like you could not write this stuff. It's ridiculous. How have we find ourselves in this situation? It's like the, I feel like we're in the darkest timeline for the CW. There's just, I just, this can't possibly be happening right now after like the new era got launched. I mean, we were already concerned and now we're even more con- more concerned, not necessarily for the shows. I, I feel like everyone would feel better if there was some indication of what Next Star was looking for in terms of renewals, like how they would renew a show. So instead everyone's kind of just panicking about ratings, which is why we've decided to create a new segment for our podcast called The Ratings Game, where we will explain to you how this works and you know learn along the way ourselves because it just seems to be um, a tangled web of numbers. All field. Yeah. <laughs> all anyone wants to talk about these days are the ratings. And I feel like now that we have all of the premieres, things have become a little clearer. Of course, this week set it back, who knows how much, but like we have the numbers for what these shows are drawing or what these shows should be drawing. So I feel like now is a good time to analyze them, talk a little bit about what they mean for the future. And see if they can hold on to them after everything going on at the moment. I know, especially because we last pod, we had toasted the Winchesters for having the best, the most watched premiere of CW's fall 2022 season. They came in at 781,000, right, viewers. Um, Let's see, the episode two numbers came in, which happened after the whole um, people lost the ability to tune into the CW. So we're sitting at a not so pretty 460,000 views for the Winchesters, which of course has started a bit of a panic. It's such a contrast. And like it's found itself right, right where most of these shows are averaging at, most of these veteran shows. That's where no show wants to find itself after just two episodes. And again, it feels like we're like kind of like shading the Winchesters here. This is by no means a shade on the Winchesters. Its yeah. numbers should not be there. Its numbers wouldn't be there if this wasn't the situation. And it's 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 one thing to make an assumption like that, but you can see as as, as the ratings come out this week, there is a downward trend. And particularly the bigger shows are being hit the hardest because when you have a bigger audience, you have more to lose and that's exactly what's happening with the winchesters this kind of sets the winchesters up for the narrative that like oh people only tuned in because it was supernatural and they wanted to see what it was and that could very well have been true but we don't have a true uh we don't have the real truth the whole figures mm-hmm. like we don't because so many people don't have access to the cw we don't know how many people really would have not watched episode two i'm sure it would have been a drop like as usual with all um second episodes but i don't think it would have been this shocking and steep yeah i i wasn't i was expecting a shed of viewers that was just going to be the case because everyone tunes into series premieres when they're curious and then like you mentioned episode two is where they would fall off because then people will decide okay 
Um, if they have another Tuesday show that airs at eight, they'll go ahead and watch the one that they, like that's their favorite and they'll stream next day. So we don't know how many people did that uh, and with, unaware that of the Verizon issue. And we don't know how those numbers are gonna look once the streaming gets added to it. We're in the plus three and the plus seven. Hopefully it like climbs its way back up to a number that would seem reasonable um, for, uh, cause a 300K job just isn't, mm-hmm. that's not it. It even yeah. hit Walker, right? Uh, not yet. I mean, Walker did go down, which was unexpected in some ways, but cause Walker, Walker will fill it this week. Cause last week the, the deal ended on Friday, yeah, Friday, right. October 14th at midnight, which is why some people went to bed secure <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, like tried to turn the CW on the following morning and nothing came on for them. Just a lovely sign saying Verizon no longer has it. But it did affect um, All-American and All-American Homecoming. All-American's premiere was 450,000 and their episode two was 410,000. And then All-American Homecoming's premiere was 350,000 and their episode two was 270,000. All-American balanced out more, but that's not surprising since it's season five for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And and All-American Homecoming isn't necessarily still trying to find its audience because they're in season two, but this did not help matters. No, and I think that's the case of those shows have smaller audiences compared to some of the other shows on the network. So on one hand, you see how it didn't affect All-American as much as some of the other shows. But on the other hand, I said the shows with the biggest audiences have the most to lose. I also dare say the show with the smallest audiences have the most to lose here as well, because yes, it means less people will tune out, but it's a bigger fraction of their audience. So when you see something like with All-American Homecoming, it suffered a bit of a steep drop. The same with Professionals. Stat, and maybe looking at those stats on first glance, you might say, oh, it's professionals went from 300 and something thousand down to 200 and something thousand. That's not as big a drop as like, say, the Winchester's dead. And that's very true, but it's nearly as big a fraction because professionals and All-American Homecoming are watched by less people. So the a smaller amount of numbers or viewers that they lose will be just as big of a fraction because their audiences aren't that big all in all. So I feel like both the big shows may have more, more to lose here technically, but the small shows, smaller and much shows have arguably just as much, if not more to lose because they rely on those numbers. And the fact that it's a trend across all shows, top, middle, bottom, it shows that it is affecting all of the shows at this point. So, which means, no amount of promo can fix that. I know I know we're talking about CW here and they don't exactly promo, but if they did, nothing, I don't know, I see how they could fix that, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's it's concerning in the sense that like we will have to wait a few days after a, a show premieres a new episode to really find out what, not necessarily its true figures, but something close to their true figures. Um, and that's sort of when we'll start realizing, okay, which shows do people even next day stream? Like, Because if, if, there's going to be an issue for shows where if someone doesn't watch it live and they just don't watch it live and then they don't stream it next day either, they'll just catch up the following week, which is going to be a problem um, for some of the audience. And then you have the issue of um, the Winchesters is such put in such an unfair position. Really all the shows that premiered, um, like what was that last week that premiered last week? are in a terrible position because they haven't had enough time to build up the audience for the season. Everybody else is in, well, Stargirl's ahead of the pack because she's been on for a while. And then everybody else is about um, two to three episodes into their seasons. 
so they're they're cementing in the way that like the Winchesters, All American, and All American Homecoming professionals didn't get to do yet. That's the thing. The, these shows haven't really don't we don't know what their audiences look like. Stargirl is the exception because it was a veteran series and it's on its third season and it had like four weeks before the rest of the shows joined it. Um, and it's holding its own, all the things that considered. It went down a bit, but it brought itself back up. We'll see how the, uh, the Verizon issue impacts Stargirl now. Hold your, hold your thoughts on that. But all in all, you're right. The Winchesters and Walker Independents haven't had a chance to establish an audience because you have the premiere bump. But then before we even get to week two, week three, week four, now they've had this issue perhaps undercut them. So we don't know what a general audience might look like. Of course, streaming numbers might tick that up. But now all of a sudden it feels like we're talking about CW years ago where streaming matters more than on the night viewers. And if we've learned anything about Nexstar, was it not supposed to be the opposite? That on the night viewership is the most important thing. It feels like we're one step forward, if you can call that forward, and two steps back. What timeline are we living in? <laughs> The darkest one, the darkest timeline. <laughs> I blame Barry Allen. <laughs> <laughs> so based on where we are now with what we have, what do we think of the ratings? Like what's the takeaway so far? Personally, I think that Stargirl may fare better than everybody else. They, at, at the moment, um, they're the only CW fandom with an active renewal campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, which means that they are putting information out at least like online across the web so that that fan base knows um what to do in in this um situation everybody else is playing catch-up because they were not this was not the time for their renewal campaigns and so mm -hmm. they might have to get into that mindset where like if you don't watch on the night please just leave your tv on like, or if you, um, if you try to watch on the night, you can stream immediately next day. If you can't, um, I think everyone's kind of have to gonna have to rally the, rally the troops um, in a way. Um, at this point, I feel like it would be weird for Nexstar to penalize any, any show. Like we shouldn't walk away from this with a Tom Swift situation where something gets canceled after four episodes when mm -hmm. you're in the middle of a dispute with the um, television provider. Like that should not be happening. Mm. And I think that's the most frustrating thing, even about this conversation, because like when we came up with this idea after all the premieres, it was like a positive thing. It was like, look at all those numbers on the CW. We haven't seen that recently. But the whole like status and basis of this conversation has changed ever since the uh, the next star dispute became or the next star and Verizon dispute became such a, a conversation. And I am glad that people are talking about it so that they know that's the explanation for the ratings drop. But like things were good shows were good the winchesters at walker independence were in very good places these were among the highest watched the, the, the most watched broadcasts of the whole season thus far and they probably would have remained that way unless something had like an alien second week bounce but we're in a very good we were in a very good place so i feel like the next few weeks i, I want to say they won't be pivotal but i, I we, we don't really know what kind of fraction of audiences will be tuning in going forward. Things were in an excellent place last week, but this is kind of completely upended it. So don't worry about your show just because of 
what's going on at the moment because at the end of the day it's impacting every show but I know the Stargirl fans were out there they were panicking that it was no longer the most watched show on the network but that happens when you have new shows show up the series premieres are always going to be the more watched programs especially when they're spun off of huge franchises but like Stargirl was holding it Stargirl was the most watched show on the network when it was the only original full of acquisitions it stayed in the top three and four even when the new show showed up and then last week it had that huge 100,000 k or 100k bounce so Yes, I do feel like this Verizon issue might impact it going forward, but just remember that it's impacting every show. And then I think of all the shows we've seen so far, Stargirl is the one that has managed to hold its own the best. And that was with little to no promo. So keep the faith that more importantly, keep tuning into that show and all of your favorite shows. Mm -hmm. I'm honestly, I'm choosing to be optimistic. I'm not worried Hmm. specifically about the Winchesters and Walker Independence because I'm of the mind that it's bad business to start this new era, have two shows that are so seemingly big um, and then just canceling them because I don't think it's a good strategy personally. This is my thought. I don't think it's a good strategy to keep ordering shows, developing them, airing them and canceling them after one season and trying new things because that that just muddles your brand and it destroys uh, brand loyalty the consumers get exhausted is just not if they want to help increase their viewership they need to bet on the shows that they have and not cancel them i'm sure we're going to see cancellations i'm not going to predict which shows those are going to be because i i mean we don't have enough material um but i'm just like i'm not worried there's nothing it's out of my control at this moment so all i can do is watch the shows and talk about them and cross my fingers but we'll definitely be tracking everything in the ratings game. Very true. And that's very Zen read. I really <laughs> like that. I think like everyone like take a deep breath. Yeah. Like we're only like, two relax. weeks into the Winchesters. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's like slight panic, but like we can like, just, we can do this. It'll be okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. And maybe I'm being too naive, but I, I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's good. I'm going to like strike the part about what show is most in danger. And we're just going to keep it positive because at this <laughs> point, it really, it's not fair, right, to be judging them currently um, mm. based on the numbers that are coming in during a, a distribution dispute. Um, but I mean, we can still be like, if your show's in the lower end of the pack, you know which one it is, mm-hmm. light a little fire under them, maybe tweet a little bit more. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> Tune into your show. <laughs> <laughs> on the night if you can if you cannot stream it next day on cwtv.com or the cw app you don't need a login you don't need a subscription and you don't need to authenticate anything get at those views for free yes yes putting the ratings game to bed for now it'll be back next week um arrow Starting with Arrow History, Michael, you have the floor. Oh, thank you. Before we start imposing my blinds, it's too bright. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, right. Well, it fits the mood though, because- It does, uh... it does, but you can't see me and that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, yeah. 10th anniversary of Arrow. First of all, that makes me feel incredibly old. I don't like it. Um, but second of all, um, how, how did we get here? I mean, like if you cast yourself back to 2012, um, what did the superhero TV landscape look like? You had Smallville had just wrapped up by all of a year. And I feel like 
we're going to do a lot of credit in Arrow in this episode, but I feel like you can't credit that movement without crediting Smallville because I think it was the show that kind of bridged the gap that gave us this superhero era we're in right now. And how did it do it? Well, it started as a teen drama. Um, Smallville debuted at a time when teen dramas were huge, but by the end of its 10 season run, it was a fully blown superhero show just without the costumes, with the exception of the Green Arrow who did have a costume. The irony, but um, that evolution, I think, allowed the TV landscape to evolve with it. So you had a teen drama in season one and a superhero show in season 10. And I don't think without that kind of like growth, we would the era around it or the television landscape around it would have grown in the way it did because superheroes never really worked on TV unless you talk about the 66 Batman series, the 75 Linda Carter Wonder Woman series. You never really had that iconic superhero series outside of those two. They tried it a lot in the 90s and it didn't work. They tried it a lot in the early 2000s and it didn't work. But Smallville was the one that changed the game. So when it ended, you were like, where do we go from here? And I think because Oliver Queen was so popular in Smallville, that opened up the gates for them to say, let's give the Green Arrow his own show. But instead of making it a spin-off of Smallville, they decided to start from scratch. And this was a very, very realistic post-Dark Knight kind of landscape where everybody wanted dark and gritty superhero shows. And Arrow certainly fell victim to that because when it started, this show was nothing like the Green Arrow in the comic books. It was nothing like the Green Arrow that you saw in Smallville. Um, a, a lot of people said this Oliver Queen was essentially just Bruce Wayne with Oliver Queen's backstory. And I do, I see the comparison. It's very hard to get away from that. Arrow did go out of its way to change things as it went on. But I dare say that it got it so right when it stayed dark, it probably should have stayed dark throughout its whole run. But that's just down to personal test. But yeah, before we get into it, I just wanted to take this like opportunity to celebrate Arrow because this has been such an awful year for the Arrowverse. I, I think with the end of The Flash next year, that's it. This could be it forever. We had the Just As You conversation last week or the week before about how it's completely, it's not the show we thought it was going to be. So it just feels like the Arrowverse could be on its way out. But before it goes out, let's take ourselves back to the beginning and celebrate it a little bit. So I talked a little bit about superhero TV back in 2012. And before my monologue begins, if it hasn't already, do you guys remember what it was like back then? Do you remember if you saw any superhero trailers for Arrow or anything and, and thought that's different? Or what were your earliest memories of Arrow? And it doesn't have to be watching an episode, but when do you remember that Arrow became a thing? Uh, so for me, this is funny because it has a soap opera connection. <laughs> so I knew <laughs> Arrow was happening because uh, Jacqueline McInnes Wood, who plays um, Steffi Forrester on Bold and the Beautiful, I think she played a character in the pilot. I have, it's escaping me what character it was. I want to say that it was like his sister or something. Um, and so I, I was like, oh, Arrow was happening. And that was the end of my Arrow journey <laughs> <laughs> until uh, the, the Flash appeared. I'd seen the trailers and it was very much giving Bruce Wayne. And I was like, I, I can only do one broody superhero. I'm so sorry, Oliver, more power to you. And I, <laughs> I gave it up to the CW. I was like, I hope you get people tune in. And that was the end of me. I honestly can't remember like that time specifically I'm trying to go back um because when you said that Smallville had only been off for like a year I was like I I didn't realize <laughs> it was so close together I didn't I didn't even realize Smallville was on I knew it was on for 10 years but holy crap 2011 um I don't remember I know I was so excited about Arrow 
which is unlike me. Um, <laughs> but I don't know why. I don't know if I watched the trailer. It was definitely the marketing. Like mm-hmm. the poster, they had Stephen Amell on that poster, like the season one poster of Smallville. And it was like, okay, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> I will tune in. Um, but I don't know if I lasted long in the show. Not to any fault of the show. Just at that time, I would watch shows and then fall off of them for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I can't remember like any trailers or whatever, but I remember everyone talking about the show, like this is so good. And it was such a different conversation about a CW show. And I remember that being really exciting. It really was. It was an, a very exciting time for like the evolution of superheroes, but you never kind of saw that kind of thing on TV because anytime they tried to do superheroes on TV, it ended up a little bit corny. So the fact that we saw a TV series modeled after a movie franchise. Now, of course, the Arrow's budget was nowhere near the budget of the Dark Knight movies. That was never going to happen. But the fact that you managed to get that kind of realism. And yes, I agree. They did very much market it like Smallville with all the like shirtless <laughs> photo suits at the start. Um, uh, but it very much changed as it went on. But it's it's wild to think about and hear how you you guys like got connected to Arrow in the first place. Who would have thought like a decade later we'd be all sitting here like going crazy over Superman at Lois and like that journey probably never would have happened without Arrow kicking things off the start. And um, also Sabrina Jacqueline McInnes would just uh, I looked it up right there. She played the original Sarah Lance in the pilot. Oh, um, okay. uh, when Oliver was on the boat with her and uh, the boat went down and they thought Sarah died. That was before the new Sarah was going to become a character. And of course, then they recast the character later on with Katie Lotz, who went on to lead Legends of Tomorrow. Wow, what a journey. Um, but yeah, I, it's weird to look back now because Arrow, for anyone unfamiliar, although have you been living under a rock for a year, decade, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was about um, Oliver Queen. His ship went down. He was a playboy billionaire who not a good person his uh, ship went down when he was cheating on his girlfriend with her sister um the sister supposedly died um all of his family and the crew died but oliver was saved by his father spent five years stranded on an island which we would later find out weren't five years on an island it was two years on an island and then he started working for an operative organization messy 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 but anyway um he then returned home to star city after five years it was called Starling City at the time. This show evolved a lot. Um, <laughs> and he became the vigilante known as the Arrow. He killed people, but he it was a really, really good... It was an excellent first season, basically. He... Were you going to say something, right? Yeah, didn't his dad leave him, like, a book? Like, a little black That's book? That's it, like, yeah. People to get... Yep. I love like every episode he would like scratch it off. Yeah, yeah. I love that concept because it made it very non-superhero-like. Um, And his father had done an awful lot of awful things. So it was Oliver's mission now that he'd been given the second chance to right those wrongs. Um, And so he would go after all the people that his father had in the book and stroke them off one by one after he killed them. But I think as the first season went on and he saw that the death was creating panic in the city and that everything he was working towards also created another monster in the dark archer who had become his first big, big, big bad vigilante um, to take on. And then it was like, wait, who killed this person? Was it the dark archer? Was it the arrow? So it basically Oliver, a lot, as he learned a lot about himself as he went on throughout the first season, he figured out that he didn't have to kill everyone. And so it became about saving the city instead of avenging his father. And between working with detective Lance, who was, Oliver's ex-girlfriend and the sister he cheated on's father. Um, he befriended him. And even though the detective didn't like him at the start, they eventually started working together and slowly cleaned up the city. Um, Oliver's ex-girlfriend's sister who died 
turned out she wasn't dead. She returned as the Canary. Um, and then that inspired Oliver's ex-girlfriend, Laurel, who was her sister, to become the Black Canary. Team Arrow was born. And um, vigilantes ran amok in the city for eight wonderful years. Um, but like, that was just the beginning. Arrow's success paved the way for a lot more to come with it. And the first one was, of course, The Flash. Barry Allen was introduced in Arrow's second season. And he was supposed to star in a backdoor pilot, but the character was so popular. They did away with that plan. Episode 20 of season two was supposed to be a backdoor pilot, but they did away with that plan and decided to just give The Flash his own pilot. And it was ordered straight to series. It was a resounding success. Um, and the funny thing about The Flash is it became a far bigger success than Arrow. And that was just simply down to the fact that The Flash was a much more well-known superhero than The Green Arrow was. So... Um, I believe Arrow's pilot got like 3.5 million or something like that. And the Flash's pilot got 4 million, I think. So it's the Flash set such a high standard. I think it was the second most watched episode on the CW ever behind the pilot of the Vampire Diaries. Um, so like you th think of all those names it was, and that highlights just how the CW was changing because this network known for its teen dramas, its supernatural dramas had bred this kind of new, unique superhero show and then went on to spawn an even more successful one. And like you can't talk about the Arrowverse without talking about mm -hmm. the Flash because like here we are now in the final year of the Arrowverse and it's going to end just because the Flash is ending. I think that highlights how big a success the Flash was. Not to take anything away from Arrow, it paved the way for it. But like the movement Arrow started and then the Flash started was showing that superheroes could work on TV. That kind of inspired other networks to do the same thing, which is where CBS and Supergirl came along. Now, Supergirl was a unique situation because it was still produced by the Arrowverse uh, creative team. It was just on a different network. Looking back now, it sounds like such a bizarre thing because I don't even know why they bothered doing that in the first place. But Supergirl was probably arguably the biggest success superhero TV has ever seen because the pilot was watched by 13 million people. Um, when would you see those numbers anywhere? Um, uh, billboards all over LA. Calista Flockhart attached it to the project. Um, it was very much, it was a lot more cinematic than its, prede or its predecessors. But I feel like as it went on, it became clearer that CBS could not sustain that because I remember the reports that it would, CBS had to pay, I think, Warner Brothers a couple of million to use the Supergirl character per episode. So that didn't even take into account the, the budget, the CGI, anything like that. Callista Flockhart, it didn't take anything like that into account. So even though Supergirl was a resounding success and it averaged at like 7 million viewers for the first season, I think the, the decision came up, could it be renewed for a second season? Would it be cancelled? Because there's no way CBS could sustain this. And then the decision was made to renew it for a second season, but move it to the CW because since the CW was co-owned by CBS at Warner Brothers, they would not have had to pay that fee to use the Supergirl character anymore. And um, production in Vancouver is far cheaper. So I just think that that, that came together. On one hand, I said came together. It means we lost Callista Flockhart and a big part of the heart of the show and Cat Grant. But it made business sense to move the show to where the other shows were being filmed because it meant you could do more crossovers, the Arrowverse grew. And then this was the same year that Legends of Tomorrow came as well. And that was, you see, I, I, I just, I talk about the pinnacle of superhero TV and it very much feels like we're in it now with Marvel. There's no getting away with that. But you see to be a, a superhero fan in that 2016 to about 2018, when you had the Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow on every week, 
Um, sometimes the CW would bump them up. Sometimes it would rely on one every one each night to draw the viewers because all of them were pulling the viewers. Were you going to say something, Ray? I was just going to say it sounded like it was the best of times. <laughs> it was. It really was. Um, they, when they had, and then they built towards the crossovers. And my favorite, one of my favorite things about the crossovers was like the invasion one was the first big one, and they had like a little teaser at the end of each of the standalone episodes that tied into the big crossover. So like, was it um, at the end of the Supergirl episode? So Supergirl was set on a different earth. I think I've said that many times in this podcast before, but Supergirl was set on a different earth, which is how they explained why it was on a different network and they didn't want to do the crossovers every so, every so often. But CW stayed true to that for a long time. They had it set on a different earth. They, um, so at the end of the Supergirl episode, Barry and Cisco popped out of the wormhole. It was like, Kara, we need your help. And she was like, what are we up against? At the end of uh, Legends of Tomorrow, when they were in like the 1900s or whatever, uh, Sarah stormed down to the rest of the Legends. It was like, right, we need you guys to stop rowing out because our friends back in 2016, they need our help. And then walked a big epic finale. So they had a great way of like teasing the crossovers. And then, of course, you had the crossovers, which just drew millions, millions of viewers in. They were the most watched broadcasts across the CW for the whole season. There was no getting away from that. They were huge. And like... It, I'm sure it was interesting for fans of one of the shows trying to tune into the crossover episodes and understand all of them. But like, they were like many movies every week or every year. And it was just, it was, it was like watching a, like a movie on a, on a small screen. It was so unheard of. And the fact that they managed to sustain that annually right up until Crisis on Infinite Earths in 2020 when it ended, uh, it's just insane. And it, I, I, I can't put into words enough how much I just love tuning into those every night of the week. I said CW used to double them up. So sometimes it was a double bill. Sometimes they just put one on each night so they could rely on those viewers because the, all of the shows drew a large audience. And the funny thing is, even those shows like the B, or B shows like Legends, which was always considered a B spinoff, it got to the stage where it was so popular that it was drawing more viewers than Arrow as Arrow started running out of steam halfway through its run. So it was just this whole universe was just there was no getting away from just how popular it was. Feels weird to say now looking back, but like I just it's it's hard to imagine a world where that didn't happen. We we said we credit Arrowverse or superhero and DC TV for starting this wave of uh, Marvel shows, even when you look at it. But like I can't imagine how it would have happened without those shows. And I do have to give credit to the CW for being the ones to do it because CBS tried it with Supergirl. And while I do agree that that was the best quality season, they could not sustain that. Then you had the likes of Agent Carter and Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. That network chose not to sustain them either. The excellent Agent Carter was cancelled after two seasons. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., although it ran for seven seasons, was very much running on fumes by the end of it. The show, which had like was 11 million tuning into it in its first season, ended with like 2 million tuning into the final season. So not even Marvel could sustain network TV. And yet DC managed to do it because the CW was just, was just this little hub for uh, superhero TV, which is why it's funny that now we're in such an era about ratings that... Uh, the network didn't care about ratings back then because they knew they were producing these shows to become global phenomenons. And that's exactly what they did. It's a shame looking back now that uh, these show those shows were among some of the ones that get cancelled because obviously you had Batwoman, which came later, Black Lightning, which came later. Black Lightning ended prematurely, Batwoman was cancelled and then Legends was cancelled. And you think all of it was down to ratings. 
even though this network didn't care about ratings, this universe was what, which was which was what was drawing the most viewers each week. It's just sad to see how things have pivoted over time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but again, it's so easy to talk about this and go down the negative route because of what we've been through the last year. But yeah, I kind of just wanted to look back at Arrow and just credit it because I nobody has been posted more angry tweets about the show than I have. It has been very frustrating throughout its run, but it's also been probably the most arguably dare I say the most pivotal show of the last 10 years because we will talk about the flash we'll talk about the marvel shows for decades to come but none of it would have been possible without arrow and again I just I can't believe it's been 10 years because I, I watched that show religiously funny story I did not start from the start I think I started around season three I binged the first two seasons and then because I was so excited for the flash Michael you fraud <laughs> <laughs> what can i say can we delete that <laughs> uh, uh yeah um i started uh, we were so excited about the flash so i started binge watching arrow i was going to watch it earlier and i did watch the pilot quite early but then i just like reed said when you watch so much at the time it was easy to fall off um but then i binge watched the first two seasons before season three started and watched it in conjunction with the flash and then watched the two of them in conjunction with supergirl and legends of tomorrow and black lightning and batman it was it's been a wild I want to say 10 years, but it was eight years for me, my, me being a fraud and all that. Um, but like, it's just, it's been a wild eight years to look back on and it's not over yet. We still have one more season of the flash left. And before we move on to what the future of the Arrowverse could have looked like, we're very much living in it right now with the, these kind of unusual spin-off shows that aren't spin-off shows via Superman at Lois and Stargirl. I feel like that's going to be this with the way the CW goes, goes going forward. Stargirl was never meant to be set on the same Earth's Earth. Crisis on Infinite Earth established that it was set on the new Earth too. Um, although the the weird thing is that Superman at Lois was very much being set up and geared to be an Arrowverse show because it's the same Superman, Lois, Lucy, we all met on Supergirl. But somewhere along the line, they decided to divorce that show from the Arrowverse. So I think what we're what the future of this universe looks like now is going to be shows inspired by the original Arrowverse shows that are no longer directly connected to it it gives them that freedom to work with their own stories and so that they're not all interconnected but that that would that way you have superman at lois which is like i said the same superman at lois we met on supergirl but they're not the same versions of those characters they're set on a parallel universe so they have their own stories to tell not that aren't directly tied to the Arrowverse. and now by the looks of things we'll have just as you which again was it would be led by david ramsey's john diggle but as we learned a few weeks ago it won't be the same john diggle we met in the Arrowverse. it'll be this john diggle of superman at lois so it's it's a very unusual time i feel like the, the remnants and the faces of the arrowverse will very much be on our screens for years maybe decades to come but they won't be the same versions of the characters and it won't be the same world we watched for this last decade it's 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 bittersweet because i very much want the arrowverse to live on forever i don't think we'll be we'd be here without it and i do think we've talked about this with like the shakes of riverdale over time i do think it'll become one of these cult universes that people look back on it was like wow i can't believe how great they had it because it's definitely changed ever since the marvel shows debuted and showed that you can have cinematic quality on television a lot of people tend to throw shade at the arrowverse because like how did they sustain eight seasons on a pure tv budget the effects look bad whatever but like it's, it's all about honoring the past. And I don't like talking about this universe in the past when it's still technically on screens right now. But like without Arrow, without The Flash, without Supergirl, without any of these shows, we would not have 
WandaVision, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, I'm not going to list them all, it's endless, but uh, we would not have all of those shows. And I know that's a very bold statement to say, but Marvel tried network TV, it didn't work for them, and then they pivoted to streaming. But I don't even think any of that would have been possible. It's no surprise that Agent Carter and Agent Shield popped up out of the word work right when Arrow and The Flash and Supergirl were thriving. You know what I mean? Like the, at the end of the day, this the biggest cinematic universe in the world was inspired to try out television because the CW was doing it so well. And it's a shame that they're moving away from that. But like without Arrow, without the Arrowverse, we wouldn't be here today. And I think if there's, you can take anything away from my endless rambling, that's it. We're living in a, a, a wonderful golden age of superhero TV that makes, that make, I'm sure makes people who grew up with 60s Batman and the 70s Wonder Woman feel reminiscent and nostalgic of what it was like back then. They never, though back then it never quite managed to become the global phenomenon that it is nowadays. But Arrow, The Flash, and all of the other shows made that happen. So I just wanted to honor that. And we've talked about what the future of the Arrowverse is, but now we get to talk about what the future of the Arrowverse could have been. And I think I don't know if that's a bittersweet or if that's fun, but I'm very excited to have this conversation because Arrow inspired a lot of offshoots throughout its run it was going to buy out by leaving a direct spin-off behind in Green Arrow and the Canaries, which would have starred Katie Cassidy, who played both versions of Laura Lance and Arrow, mm-hmm. Juliana Harkovay, who played Dinah Drake, the other Black Canary, and uh, Kat McNamara, who played Mia Smoke on Arrow, but after Crisis Reset things, her name was now Mia Queen. Uh, so it would have starred those three ladies as Green Arrow and the Canaries. Unfortunately, after a year-long wait, the CW decided not to go ahead with it because of the pandemic. But the episode was incredibly successful. It was the most-watched episode of Arrow's final season, barring the Crisis crossover. And the reviews were highly positive. I would know I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a shame it didn't go ahead. But we can't talk about Arrow. We can't talk about Green Arrow and the Canaries without you expecting me to recommend that episode as the one that my besties would watch. Yes, I forced them to watch it. So I'm so excited for this conversation. What did you guys think of Green Arrow and the Canaries? Reed, you go first, because I've, I've seen the episode, so I want to know what you thought. It was so much fun. I really liked it. Um, I can't believe that they didn't pick it up. Like, it's shocking mm-hmm. to me. Um, I have a ton of questions, which I will save for later because we will literally be here all day because it like gets into like continuity and like because I don't know anything that happened before that um but I loved Kat McNamara she was so good um I I think the three of them were just some of the writing was a little bit like they're trying a little bit too Mm -hmm. hard because it was like a backdoor pilot but it was so endearing and like I could just I could see the whole vision I could see six seasons I could see it all but I don't know that I would have me now would definitely watch it, but like me a couple of years ago probably wouldn't have because it's so deeply ingrained in the Arrowverse mm-hmm. and that requires some knowledge of the other shows. So I probably wouldn't have watched it. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. I just mean that in a realistic way. Um, but I, I had so much fun watching the episode. They were all so good. They were, so this is my second time watching the episode and it was a reminder that the CW really let a gem go. Uh, it's gotta be like the strongest pilot I've seen for a spinoff that is that deeply rooted in the lore of the of 
of the universe is a part of. And I was like, I mean, I couldn't remember everything that happened, but it was intriguing to find out. Like if you were a new person who tuned in to, if Green Arrows and the Canaries had gotten picked up to be a new person, they'd be like, okay, how did this happen? What is this? There was really well in their archetypes. And of course, like wanting to figure out how Mia having her memories is going to affect her new life, especially just going to skip ahead but with her fiance getting his memories back to trauma problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like it, it definitely very much was rooted in the arrow continuity and for a bit of backstory a tiny bit of backstory i've talked way too much in this episode but tiny bit of backstory it was the original season seven flashbacks told the very or flash forwards told the very story of a very dark future and long story short when oliver reset the timeline in crisis it changed everything everyone in the future was no longer miserable they were so happy crime in star city was no longer still a thing in 20 years from now everybody was still happy so the crisis upset and reset all of that which is why you needed the two characters from the present and the canaries to come forward and catch me up on everything which is what happened in the past and in her previous life um yeah, it was so much fun. And I I agree rewatching. Of course, there's a bit of, there are some lines of dialogue done to catch people up on what's happening or to, just to break things down. Uh, the one that stood out to me was when um, uh, Laurel explained that John Johns was the Martian responsible for uh, making them all remember who they were and that Cisco then copied those powers and put them on a device. And then Dinah responded with, so a friend of Supergirl's has a power that a friend of the Flash was able to replicate via tech. And like people do not talk like that, but it was very much just done so that uh, so that anybody tuning in would understand who Cisco and John Jones were, John Jones were, um, and who the Flash and Supergirl were. Um, I think the big issue that a lot of fans had was that if it was said in the future of the Arrowverse, it very much limited the shows in the present of the Arrowverse of talking or doing anything that could change the future because then the show couldn't exist if the timeline had changed. But like, look at look at the future of the Arrowverse now. You know what I mean? We've only one show on. Like, it it, it could have went ahead after all. But I feel like those the three of them worked so well together. It was such a bizarre, unusual kind of uh, dynamic because they didn't a lot. They didn't interact an awful lot in the main show, so it was kind of cool to see them interact that much. Of course, as well, it was great great to see Kitty Cassidy get a leading role because she was the female lead of Arrow in its first season. And then the original Laurel was killed off. Then Katie Cassidy was brought back as a Black Siren, the evil Laurel from Earth 2, who then eventually became a hero in Black Canary. And that's the Laurel we see in Green Arrow and the Canaries. So it's great to see her get a leading role. It was great to see Dinah get a leading role because she was very much overlooked in the main show. And of course, it was great to see Kat get a leading role. I really think this could have been a huge success because like, you think about even like the Winchesters and uh, Walker Independence, the viewing figures they brought in, which were great for the CW now, but the pilot episode of Green Arrow and the Canaries got 900,000 viewers. So if that had managed to start at a time when that kind, that amount of people were still tuning into the show, it could have been a huge success. It's a shame it didn't go forward. But yeah, I feel like that was a huge part of Arrow's history that probably won't get talked about enough. Now it's because it'll be like the thing that never happened. So we'll just pretend it didn't happen. But I would refuse to talk about Arrow's history without talking about that. And I'm glad the two of you watched it. I'm so excited and glad that you loved it. I don't know where the, what the, if we'll ever see those characters again. I feel like the final season of The Flash is the, the final opportunity to make that happen. I know uh, 
Kat did appear in an episode of The Flash last season and they talked about the possibility of her returning and Kat has said she's always open to returning to that role. She would love to uh, bring me a smoke back. And honestly, I love that response. I just don't know if the final season of The Flash will have enough time to do that, especially since her last appearance on The Flash tied up nothing. Um, you know, uh, Reed um, William, her brother, obviously went missing at the end of Green Arrow and the Canaries. Well, the episode of Flash is set two years after that and she still hasn't found her brother. Um, oh, well, <laughs> so that's kind of awkward. Um, first mission is the Green Arrow is going swimmingly, man. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope I hope they get the chance to wrap that up because William was a huge character on Arrow, and I would like to know that he's like safe and like he's lost two years of his life, kidnapped, wherever the heck he is. I would like to know that he's safe. I would also, of course, like to see the Canaries again. It was wonderful to see that. Um, but yeah, it's so weird to just look back on the the history, and I, I I could talk about this for days. I very much nearly have, but um. Yeah, I just wanted to raise a glass to Arrow and to toast its 10th anniversary um, and what could have been. Let me raise my glass to Arrow. To and, Arrow. and like they said in the end of the episode, to the Canaries. Yeah. yeah. What an era, guys. What an era. That they can revisit. Like there seemed, based on the pilot, there is enough there for them to close this out and a lovely 90-minute TV movie. Um, but it doesn't even have to be that big. They just need like so because in the pilot they had one big explosion, and mm-hmm. that's where all the money went. It really <laughs> went. It was a big explosion, right? <laughs> yes, it's very. And so they could tie up this story. William deserves to get saved. We deserve to find out what that symbol meant on the stone that apparently they've had um, their whole life. I guess since it's their well, mm-hmm. it's not a pet rock. That's what Mia calls <laughs> it, but I forget what William says that it is. Oh, uh, the Hosen, yes. Um, that was a throwback to the very first episode of Arrow because when Oliver returned from the island, he handed that to his sister Thea um, as a gift that to show that he was always thinking of her. And then it became pivotal in Arrow's later seasons. But yeah, it was nice that they still had the Hosen like 30 years after Arrow was at the events of Arrow. That was really cool. So they do, they need to wrap it up then with Easter eggs, an appearance from Stephen Amell, since he keeps tweeting that he would love to put the suit back on. Um, and then it would just be nice for CW to get into its TV movie era and exploit the fact that they have access to the um, Warner Brothers superhero roster, because DC stuff. So like, why not do that? Especially because the story has been left open like this, then they deserve to finish it. Without a doubt, especially since you can't sustain that kind of ratings all the time now. That's why a lot of these shows got cancelled. But people would absolutely tune in for a one night thing. Look how well the Waltons movie did. Like, um, expand your TV movie horizon outside of the Waltons, please. Yes. Yes, please. Even if it's holiday-esque. We'll <laughs> take a, um, Thanksgiving in Star City. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Uh, but one point before we move on to what else we've been watching. Um I thought the opening sequence gave a Batman Beyond vibe. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that's the time period in which Batman Beyond takes place. But they don't really have to do that much to give us that story. So like if just the, um, they could use Green Arrow and the Canaries episode as a, as a means of like taking notes, open the book, jot some notes down and someone pitch the script. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I got that as well. You saw it with the makeup that Laurel was wearing, the like neon lights of the city. They very much... If a superhero show was set in the future, it's always going for neon lights and like futuristic luck. And this absolutely did that. I feel like it should have opened the doors for Batman Beyond or even in like future episodes that could have referenced that. And that again, just feels like another missed opportunity from the Arrowverse because Batman Beyond's name came up once or twice in the conversations of potential spinoffs. Oh, what could have been? 
I'm not ready to let it go. It's been 10 years and yet we could still do more. Just spin off mm-hmm. some things. TV movies. Yes, TV movies. But speaking of spinoffs, The Winchesters, episode two, uh, was interesting. I did not like it as much as the premiere, but I think that has more to do with the handling of how they were talking about their parents than the entirety of the episode. Hmm. Wait, expand on, I want to hear your thoughts about how they were handling the parents. I want to hear that. Okay, so... I did not like the energy John was giving when he popped out that van in the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode when his mom really only wanted a phone call. Um, I know they explain it at the end of the episode that he was actually projecting his anger at his father, at his mom, yeah. but she never once said that she didn't believe in him. She said, call me <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and also don't show up at, um, at her garage covered in blood. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, it's not my blood. I'm like, John. <laughs> <laughs> not the point <laughs> yes um so i just i know he he's like he's a young man and he's coming into his own and he's been in a war zone and he's not used to having to check in anymore but you don't just disappear for a week pop out yell at your mom pop back in the van and disappear once again like mm-hmm. you just don't do that respect your mama <laughs> just, it was so mean i know i know she gave as good as she got but she was just standing there when he walked off on her and like you can't falter for being concerned about him, especially when he turns up dressed like that with the blood all over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the whole episode, it felt like taught him that lesson to to respect her and to be more connected with her because the monster came to him as his mom. Mm-hmm. So he's like fighting his mom while knowing it's not her, which that reveal was so good in the motel room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when he goes to hit her with the bar. Um, but yeah, I'm glad he came to that realization. Um, and to your point, Sabrina, I was kind of like not feeling this episode as much, but they really just like got right into the thick of like next mission, mm-hmm. next, you know, it, it like um I know Michael had said this one wasn't really like a rehash of the pilot, which I appreciated. Um, but it did kind of give us the like monster of the week vibe, which I'm mm-hmm. I imagine that's how supernatural sustained being on for 15 years <laughs> yeah it was very much I, that reminded me very much of a supernatural episode and the funny thing is that's the thing with monster of the week episodes you're gonna like some that you're gonna like or not like others and i really like the fact that this one even though it was it was an odd one for episode two because it very much did feel like it just as reed said got right into the thick of things that zombie scene at the start was very very intense um, and like they were just like after just like getting together and finding their groove as like a team all of a sudden they're like battling zombies like this was this could have been the sixth episode for all we knew it was just it was very into it and but I do the thing I like the most about it is because it because it made that decision we got to spend more time with other characters as well we also got to see like the team work together as a unit and I know that made Mary act out very early on you could see that she was going in that direction you're like Mary come on now listen to your team but I I get that she was trying to follow in her father's footsteps and that made her a little bit blind as to what was going on around her but then you had characters like Carlos who helped her course correct I just think this was a better episode for the supporting characters even, even if it was centered on very much on John and Mary and their parental issues I think that allowed the supporting characters in Lata and Carlos to shine and Ada as well. For sure. I think with Mary and her father, I think I'm more interested in that relationship because 
she actually, she knows him. Um, though I know last uh, review, I was like, John needs to struggle about his dad more. And that's exactly what happened except his mama took the brunt of that. Um, but with Mary and Samuel, I did like that she immediately um, knows that her father wants her to find something. She's wrong about him wanting to be a part of his own mission. Um, she just desperately wants to make sure that he's okay. But going to the commune was kind of fun, especially with how they introduced it with Carlos singing the age of Aquarius, um, <laughs> with lots of providing off-key vocals, <laughs> and just not on the same line as him, which is great, which is why I love when he's like, this is a solo, and he goes on <laughs> to finish it. Um, but I do, I do think, I agree, Michael, that this was an episode that was very much, like, this, the supporting characters shined. And I like that Lata... She's the one who's like most afraid to fight, but she, when she knows she's on the right path, she's not going to let anybody deter her, mm-hmm. not even Mary, because she was listening to Mary talk about how it wasn't the mimic and she still was over there collecting flowers because she knew, <laughs> she know she knows more um, about like identifying these creatures. So she wasn't going to let Mary bulldoze over her. She was going to find the answer. Yeah. It's like book smart versus street smart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also really loved in this episode, all of the looks and connections between John and Mary (laughs) (laughs) really at the end that look when they were all together I was like oh my god Mary are you in love yet because I am (laughs) 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 and I have to give that up for uh Queen Daniil Ackles because Sabrina told us Daniil was saying I think it was the comic-con interviews that she's the one like behind the scenes that's like we need to remember this is a love story and I very Mm -hmm. much got love story vibes in this episode um which I appreciated because it's yes. so cute. <laughs> she, I like that Danielle. Um, Daniela, is it, do I pronounce it Daniela or Dan- Daniela? Her Daniel. last name. Daniela. Daniela. Um, that she's keeping everybody on track. Like, yes, all the fighting, all the stabbing, all the blood and gore and weird, weird substances, but also love story. We need looks. We need like car rides in which he tries to be smooth and Mary's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> We need material for the fan cams. <laughs> yes, exactly. The, the, the looks they give each other are so, so sweet. They're, they're very cute. Um, and I liked how at the end of the episode, one, I mean, I didn't recognize that was Mary's car the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when he was like, I'm going to fix it for my friend. And his mom fixed it for him. And then it's her car. Oh, she's the friend. That's lovely. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, that scene when she shows up, um, outside the garage and it's just John and Mary and Millie and it was kind of like awkward but it was like so sweet her meeting her mother-in-law for the first time (laughs) (laughs) I thought I totally thought like when Mary got in her car like I forgot like the emotional stakes going on between John and his mom so I thought his mom was gonna be like go over and say goodbye to her for real because he she just kind of walked away and drove off which I was like okay John didn't even look back at her. Um, not going to hold that against him. It was just something I picked up on. Um, but I love that scene. It was so cute. She she seemed so like, Mary seemed like so uncharacteristically shy and timid mm-hmm. a little bit around Millie, which I was like, oh my God. 
<laughs> you know, all of the scenes I think between John and Mary were like they're like palate cleansers for the episode because like the first one in the van took place right after that like intense zombie scene where uh, literally everybody was Mary was literally shouting at everybody and said we have to do things my way it's my way or the highway basically and then literally you caught and she's totally calm totally relaxed around John and then when she's angry in the woods then she realizes that she realizes that John's in trouble literally switches on and runs to protect him and then like you said at the end after everything was done and dusted she was still kind of timid around John and his mom and I don't know you that I think that's the one wonderful thing about their connection it really like I don't want to say turns her into a different person but she 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 is she's not quite as like fiery around him they have a lovely connection and I think that's credit to Daniil for making that happen I think that's what's going to carry their story through because we're going to I have no doubt we'll have a lot of intense episodes and she'll probably make a few mistakes along the way which as far as like finding a groove with her team all of them will I'm sure but I just feel like she has a such, such great connection with John right from the off and I think that's going to be great to see going forward there's such a vibe shift when they're alone together mm-hmm. and yes. specifically alone together away apart from the group um, that scene with Millie, it was like, I, I don't know. I like, I saw them as a unit, as like a pair, even though they're just friends at the moment. It just felt so, I don't know how to explain it. It just felt so different. The vibe between them, like it, it felt like they were aware of the weight this moment can hold kind of, or maybe mm-hmm. that's just me projecting on it, but I don't know it, when they got out of the van and it was just John and Mary and his mom there, it was kind of like, I was kind of breathless because I, I knew like what this meant specifically for the fans too of um, Mary meeting John's mom and everything. It, the vibe between them just being together separate from their friends was so endearing and cute and sweet. And I can't say it enough. <laughs> it is really nice because I mean, it could have been a moment where he introduced all his friends to his mom, but instead it's just Mary and she is, she's like in her hippie dress and she's, she's not like in her usual armor of like leather jeans. Like there's a, probably a dagger hidden in her shoe somewhere. Like she's just, she's as carefree as she would be if she was on the commune, um, but also really nervous. And I too, Reed was waiting for him to like go. I thought they were going to leave the garage together mm-hmm. since she was lingering. I was like, are you waiting for a goodbye? Or is he supposed to be coming with you? I I want him to go with you, but apparently we have a conversation with mom to finish. Um, and I appreciated the conversation with Millie, but I was also like, can can he get in the car with Mary too, though? Can we can we do both? I want another scene. Um, but they are really sweet. And I like how observant Mary is because once again, we got a look. <laughs> like when um, his mom was like, the only call I got was from Betty. And I was like, who's Betty? Yeah. <laughs> and Lata wanted to know who was Betty as well. Carlos was too busy being upset that... Um, Mary was acting like Samuel to care about Betty, but I hope, I'm assuming we're going to circle back to Betty in episode mm-hmm. three. It was kind of like a name drop. And you know, you know, when there's a name drop, it has to go somewhere. It all means something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was surprised there was nothing in the end of the episode, but I think that obviously that was very much intentional. I do think we're going to go more into John's history or as it goes on and we'll find out more about that. But yeah, it was very, I like the way that like the, the rest of the team are like, intrigued by that and but like mary hasn't shown any interest in it yet i I, maybe we'll get into that as it goes on but yeah 
I just I cannot say enough about how much I love the four of them in this episode. It was really mm-hmm. great. And I know you can be iffy on Monsters of the Week or whatever, but I just think that this episode was so good as far as establishing them as a unit. And they're all such wonderful pe- characters and people. How do you how do you feel about I think it's Latunda, our monster of the week? Um, I want to be. Yes, she fit very much into the narrative of the episode. Um, and then when I watched the screener, I was like, I'm hoping the special effects are better <laughs> once, <laughs> once the episode airs. And the vines were, the vines were better. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did go, it is interesting that the show um, is leaning heavily into like the makeup of, of um, creating monsters on their show. It, it is very reminiscent of late 90s early 2000s monster creation on television and I kind of like even though it feels sort of not a part of this generation of tv I kind of like it that Mm -hmm. the um that the monsters don't look like they would look if it was like a different television show like obviously they don't have Disney budget um or or other network budget they're working on CW budget but um it works it works for the show it really does. And I think that's like a love letter to Supernatural because when Supernatural started, it wasn't in the CGI heavy era. They did, did, did do a lot of practical things back then. Um, and I know, dare I say, it's even a love letter to shows like Buffy, which came before Supernatural. But it very much feels like part of that kind of like umbrella of when around the time of when Supernatural started. So it's pretty cool that they're going going that route. And I think that will not everything needs CGI and when you're on the CW the CGI can look patchy from time to time so it's just it's it's sometimes it's nice to stick with practical and I think that mimics it a nice throwback so is there anything else from the Winchesters that we want to critique scream about or are hoping for for episode three I don't think so I think we covered it awesome another good episode in the books mm-hmm. um Cannot wait for so episode three is little girl lost. Oh wait, are you lost, little girl? It's just something to do with being lost. Um, but it looked from the premise looked very merry heavy. Um, so I am interested to see if we're going to be doing a little bit of psychological development with her to get into her mm. emotions. I can't wait. I feel like Mary is such a great character, and I can't wait for them to get into that and explore her further. For sure, it's going to be fun. Speaking of fun. The Stargirl's fun, but was it fun this week, Michael? Mm-mm-mm-mm. Very dark this week, very dark. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, this, I've said it many times, I will keep harping on about this. This is the first episode I have not seen via any screener. So last night was very much a like, live watch for me. And uh, the, it was the, it, it was very much at the halfway point now. This episode was less about the murder mystery, but also... It's kind of like Nancy Drew and then it's it still played a huge role in the background, even if this episode was less about it. It was called Infinity Inc. Part One, and that's because of the characters it focused on. Uh, last season, we met Green Lantern's daughter for the very first time. Uh, Jenny is her name. She was a recurring character last season, but she was searching for her brother throughout the whole season. And of course, she's got her father's Green Lantern ring. So I don't know why we keep calling her Green Lantern's daughter. She technically is the Green Lantern now. She has her father's ring, um, which, like Courtney's staff, harnesses the power of the light. And last season, there was this whole big debacle about the power of the light versus the power of the darkness. They, they could only defeat Eclipso with the, by harnessing the power of the light. Um, whereas someone like the Shed, who was a villain, but then he became a hero, he could not defeat 
Eclipso because he harnessed the power of darkness and Eclipso was all about darkness. But last season, something happened to Jenny's ring. And when she tried to was it clean up residue, I don't know, from the shed or from Eclipso, a little bit of the darkness ended up seeping into the Green Lantern ring. Um, so that's caused, causing a lot of issues for her now that she's back. Um, so in this episode, we fi- finally find Jenny's brother, who she was looking for, for all of last season. He is called Todd. He is the iconic DC character known as Obsidian. Everybody was so excited when they found out he was coming in. This is one of the arcs I mentioned. And I said, we haven't heard head nor tail off in the first half of the season. Now it has begun. Um, and we first met Todd. They did a flashback to when we first met Jenny last year and when she first put on the ring and it activated for her. As this was happening parallel, Todd and his boyfriend were having a happy anniversary dinner. And uh, when the ring activated for Jenny, Todd's eyes went green. But for some reason, instead of him harnessing the power of the light, he turned into like the shadow creature and started sending out shadows, which, of course, suggests like the shed, he's harnessing the power of darkness, which which, by the way, comes from the alternate dimension known as the Shadowlands. We met that last season and uh, that's where the shades of power originates from. Uh, So that was the intro to the episode when. Uh, Todd was then taken by the police to the Helix Institute where he met what seemed to be a nice woman. The only thing is we know that this Helix Institute for superpowered people is also run by the entity known as Mr. Bones, who we now think is the person who has been watching everyone in Blue Valley since the murder mystery kicked off. And uh, speaking of the murder mystery, the reason this episode was kind of so dark was because it was all set at nighttime. And it was a very character-heavy episode. They used to do these things in the British shops. They still do from time to time. They were they would be called one-hander episodes, and it would just focus on a couple of characters talking at like three a.m. in the morning as the night goes on, and you'd learn more about the character. This was very much what this episode was like. Um, it was the middle of the night, and they'd come up with a plan for Beth to uh, hack into the power grid and pull the power in Blue Valley because the person watching them would then lose access to the cameras. So they all had to pretend they didn't know the cameras were there. Luke Wilson was brilliant. He started having them all say grace at the dinner and it completely act really, really weird. He kept calling his son Mike, Michael instead. And everyone was like, come on, Pat, be a bit more realistic. You're really like, you're really drawing attention to us here. Um, uh, so they did it. And then as they were like acting as though everything was okay, Beth managed to shut off the power to the whole grid. And then you saw the person watching them. Their fist got really, really angry. And the jigsaw they were creating with it had the skeleton face in it. He just smashed it aside. He was really upset that he could no longer say. And then the rest of the episode was about them all purring off into like sections. So many, so many sets of people and uh, all of them going and pulling the cameras while the power was out. So this person would not know that they knew basically when the power came back on, all the cameras would be gone. So it was a very like slow moving in the very good sense of the word. It was basically about people searching in the dark corners of places, cameras over here, and then having a very powerful conversation about whatever's going on with them. Courtney needed a little bit of reassurance because the JSA no longer trusts her. So it was just her and Pat in their their basement where they store the staff in order to find the secret cameras there. Rick, who now has the hourglass, that is no longer an hourglass. It powers in 24-7. I predicted last week that he may start to have some anger issues and he may start to have like 
an addiction problem to the hourglass. And that is very much the case here. Him and Beth went into the school to take the cameras there. And he started punching a hole in the wall, pulling the cameras out, everything just to show off his new fine power. And he was getting really angry about it as well. And Beth starting to get a little bit worried about him. She was like, okay, it's cool that you have this power all the time, but like, why are you so angry? And he was like, um, wouldn't you want to flex if you had this power? So he was smashing things up, leaving a trail of destruction behind him, which is not a good thing. Um, but when Courtney and Pat were in, the, in their basement finding the cameras, all of a sudden they were surrounded by the shadow and out of it came the shed who had finally come back. It was wonderful seeing the reaction online. Everyone loves the shed. He's, a, he's, he's a, our old fashioned fashion British gentleman who's just looking for a cup of tea. He was a big villain last season, but he's no longer a villain. And he said he just needs Courtney. He doesn't need the staff. Pat wasn't going to let Courtney go with her. So uh, before the shed disappeared into a shadow with Courtney, Pat joined along and the three of them disappeared and vanished, which made... Barbara, Courtney's mom, and Mike, Pat's son, very worried about the whereabouts. They were like, where are they? And the shed brought them to uh, underneath the Helix Institute where Jenny, Green Lantern's daughter, was. And they had a they had a wonderful dynamic because the shed is not happy about the fact earlier in the season when the shed would do is like disappearing into the shadows thing, you saw little green sparks. And now it turns out that him and Jenny's energies are interconnected and they can't seem to get them unwoven from each other so he can't use his powers properly and her ring isn't working properly because the light has been corrupted by the darkness and the darkness has been corrupted by the light um but long story short they figured out that they needed courtney because she knows how to channel the power of the light and they need that well if courtney overcame eclipso last season maybe courtney can help jenny overcome the darkness that's buried in a ring and save both her and the shed so Courtney said, well, the best way to do that is to save your brother. They went to save Courtney's, or what do you call it, or Jenny's brother. And unfortunately, he said, you can't let me out of this machine that Mr. Bones had trapped him in because he will destroy the world. But Jenny touched him anyway. The power of the Green Lantern ring made his eyes glow green. There was a huge explosion. And then um, Jenny's brother, Obsidian, had turned into that giant shadow creature again and started swirling. And uh, the shadow came for Courtney but Pat in the shed stepped in its way and when at the end of the episode they woke up and uh, Pat and the shed were now trapped in the Shadowlands with no way of getting home which is a terrible alternate dimension which makes you see your worst fare over and over again it's like basically looks like Blue Valley but it's black and white um, and Courtney was trapped there last season and now Pat and the shed are trapped there and since the shed's powers are weakened by the Green Lantern ring he won't be able to get them out so that's very much where things have left. It was a very different episode. It was very dark. It was very heavy. It was very character driven. The atmosphere was incredible. It was so nice just to see so many character moments. And I think the thing that was the most poignant about it was Yolanda Wildcat. In season one, Cindy had released personal photos of Yolanda around the school and her parents shunned Yolanda they treat her like garbage instead of instead of saying oh this happened to you they were very much you brought shame in our family they're utter garbage and they've made Yolanda's life a living hell so now every time she sneaks out to be wildcat they're like are you asking boys what are you doing and she was like I'm actually was actually working a shift at the diner because she works at the diner but Yolanda's mom rang the diner and was like oh you're actually there this time because I've been ringing up all week and you haven't been there what are you really up to and Yolanda's mother gave her an ultimatum that if she didn't give her her phone to show her the messages she's been sending she'd have to leave the house so basically Yolanda's parents kicked her out of her own house and um, 
trash, utter trash. Um, and in a really poignant moment, Yolanda went to Courtney's house. Now, Courtney and Pat are missing at the stage, but Yolanda went to Courtney's house. It was like, I know me and Courtney aren't talking at the moment, but basically you're the only family I've got. So Barbara gave her a hug and of course they welcomed her in. So Yolanda's staying there now. So I just, I, I feel like that's, I feel like that was the most poignant moment of the episode because Courtney and Yolanda are not on speaking terms. And yet she still saw her as more family than her own family. And that says an awful lot. Her parents are garbage. Um, and I hope they find out that their daughter actually is a superhero and she's been attracting them from evil shadow demons for the last two years. I hope they find that out because they deserve to know that after the way they've treated her. But yeah, this was a very different episode, very little, very light on the murder mystery, but very much heavy on finding out who is watching them. We don't know if it's Mr. Bones. He seems to be helping Obsidian at the Helix Institute, but at the same time, he's very angry that he's, he can't watch people anymore. So I don't know what he's up to. Um, there's an awful lot of uncertainty at the moment. And the one little thing, because I know we're all on Cindy Watch, um, uh, they said Cindy has left town. So I don't know what's going to happen. She remember, she was the one that made the JSA implode last week. Everyone knows now she's starting to develop lizard skin like her father. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But uh, yeah, it was a very different episode. There's not as many murder mystery threads to pull on that we can usually get into, especially since Cindy's no longer there. But I feel like next ep- the next episode is Infinity Inc. Part 2. It's very much going to be the carry on from that. The Stargirl always does a part one and part two midway through its season. So I feel like this will be the more character driven stuff before we get back to the murder mystery after that. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was very nice going into this episode, not knowing what to expect. And I see why this was the one that they didn't send through because it's very much its own contained story. And I can't wait to see where it goes next week. It sounded heavy, mm-hmm. but also very good. Um, and a really nice introduction for Jenny and Todd um, mm-hmm. for this part of the story. I do wonder though if Cindy will be back or if she's, it's going to be one of those ones where like she's gone for like the majority of the back half of the season and she's back in the finale. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it could go one of two ways and then A, she'll come back to prove herself at the end and help the JSA defeat whoever the bad guy is or B, there'll be another character-centric episode where someone goes to track her down, maybe Courtney and Yolanda or something and goes to track her down and says they're sorry for the way they've behaved and they understand and they want to help her. I feel like I could go one of either way, but I can't wait for her to come back because I will say the one downside to this episode is she has such a like presence about her and that was definitely missing in this episode. So I can't wait for her to return. Well, hopefully she comes running back um, because she's going to have to solve the dragon skin thing anyway, mm-hmm. and, um, unless she's, she's just going to adapt to it. And this is just what her skin looks like now. Yeah, she's going to bring chaos with her one way or another. And I honestly, we're counting down the days until it happens. <laughs> It's what she does. Everyone should just accept it. By <laughs> as long as it's chaos for good. Yeah. Not chaos yeah. for evil. <laughs> Love Cindy for who she is. <laughs> yes. Um, before we move on, though, Reed, I forgot we were going to do an All-American Homecoming season two, episode two, drive-by. You still down for it? Um, if you want to. I feel like we have a lot to get to in Wendy and Nancy. So if you want to do it quick, I guess we can. My only thing, I guess, would be that I need them to not have everybody going through drama in a singular episode, because everybody was. It was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, it was, there was a lot happening. And again, um, I'm not a fan of how Simone is being treated, which I like, I get, it's like a soap, you have to have the antagonist, but I was like, lay off of her. (laughs) Can we have a week where she's like, just chilling? (laughs) I want that 
to happen too. Like she, um, Thea and her aren't seeing eye to eye, which is understandable. Though it was surprising that she thought, well, not necessarily surprising that she thought that they, Thea was the one having Cootie act out like she was. But Damon was also right when he said, Thea would just tell you. Because that's been her MO the whole time. Like if she has a problem, you're going to know it. Like it's none of that. Um, she doesn't talk behind people's backs. She just says what she has to say. What did you think of the end ending scene that I was telling you about before you watched? I thought it was not necessary. <laughs> it really could have just rolled up to be like, how did it go, girl? Did you get into the program? Because that, it felt like there was a piece missing. Like there was a part of Keisha's plot for the episode that would have triggered a moment like that. Because I mean, it was like, I don't even know if a teacher can actually just disenroll you from the class that you were supposed to be in without you being informed so she can make room for somebody else. But that was a whole other thing. Um, but she, she just missed dinner. Like it's just, and she had an audition. I know she was having a bad day, but so Cam was right. So was he. And everything worked <laughs> out for Cam. And we were not out there. Like we bought the dinner and like, we're going to have this thing where we each say one word to you as we go down the line. <laughs> <laughs> it was cute but super corny um yeah I'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah yeah the one thing that I think the season might need to clean up though um is the transfer situation <laughs> that there's, like, there's no way that Damon transferred schools and then um his transfer was rescinded and then they still had a spot at Bringston including the spot in Cam's dorm room yeah, I like I know this is like fantasy college, like we we take it with a grain of salt, but can we have like some kind of like consultant <laughs> to be like, how realistic would it be? <laughs> like if we did this, because I was like that that took me out of the episode um a bit. I was like, it was that easy for him to come back to Princeton University. I thought you said classes were closed. Like, so how is he even registered, but for the school year for the semester? But okay. Yeah, that was a big walk back for the second episode I thought we were it gonna, was I thought we were going to be in that for a little bit I did too which is why I was like did we do that for Spark Value for the premiere because I didn't like that we walked it back that easily but yeah. I don't know I just maybe episode three will be better I didn't really quite um like this episode with exception to Amara love um yeah that seems really Amara. good that was really good um but yeah I, I need the pacing to pick up a little bit yes in yes. like a more energetic way Yes, like, yeah, um, classes, <laughs> sports, I, like, I don't even really know how to just, I just need them to, this college drama to be, one, slightly more realistic, two, for the drama to not be everybody going through drama, and three, for us to, I really need them to get to their sports seasons, like, we need to get there, because um, we're in season two now, and the, the stakes need to be higher, and right now, we keep having the same stakes, so that's what I would appreciate, but to leave current day to go back to the 1870s and hop on our horses with Horton and Callian. Um, I liked episode three, Blood and Whiskey. I did too. It um, The second episode was very much still involved in the central plot. And then this one mm -hmm. was, but they had Hoyt and Callian and Abby kind of doing their own thing that was still kind of connected in a looser way. Um, so I liked seeing what this show will be when it's not fully immersed in the central plot. I thought that's, mm -hmm. that was my biggest takeaway with the episode because at first I was like, what? What are we doing? But I really appreciated how um, 
Abby's strength once again. She is she's in it for the long haul. I'll say. Mm-hmm. She is the um it felt like a western which is strange to say because we've been saying that but it felt very much this is the problem of the week type of western yeah. trope um that felt very like not necessarily wholesome but like something terrible's going down and Abby has to fix it <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was rather cute and I like the Sullivan sisters yeah I think the thing I liked the most about this episode was like you guys said it was very the stakes were a little bit lower of course they were still important to the characters involved but this is a show that's very much been dealing with life and death stakes since it began the stakes in this one were a little bit lower and I think that allowed us to spend a little bit more time with the characters and see who they are and learn more about them um I love that Abby was sent on a mission to basically evict these people and yet she took it as her own mission to go and save them and oh my goodness, the way she spoke to uh, the sheriff in that final Ooh. scene. Mm-hmm. Icon, icon. <laughs> the subtext in that scene. And I don't even think the sh- Tom Davidson realized what she was saying to him. He was like all happy when she like soothed him and like, she is not soothing you there. <laughs> I know that whole scene. I was like, wait, does he know she knows he knows she knows? <laughs> <laughs> like, are they playing each other? It's just like a really weird game of chicken. <laughs> it felt like it, uh, which they're so good. Um, their scenes are, are amazing uh, and I, I'm gonna miss that dynamic once the cat once they both let each other know mm-hmm. the cat is out of the bag and I do know who you are though it is still somewhat unclear whether how much Tom knows but Tom is um, he's an instigator because those scenes with him and um, Augustus pushing, down, the down, pushing them and then the, the whole thing I like to play this game what's in your pockets and I was like, who plays that, Tom? I know. it's It was so interesting. We really got into Augustus, his whole world, jumping off of him shooting that man. Um, he's going through that. And then he's sort of, as far as I have read him, like a loyal character who is still like secretly skeptical or like likes to be one step ahead of people. And then suddenly Tom is just like all on his case for, it felt like, no reason I, there's probably a reason but i was just like oh, why are you like on his back about nothing right now um so it was interesting to see that dynamic play out and see like his limits augustus like where is is he willing to move the goalposts to be loyal to tom i thought that all those scenes were very um captivating yeah, and I feel like it's funny because we said that Augustus was the possibly the hardest character to read, and then there's the sheriff going and saying the same thing. I can't get a read on you, but even with the fact that we could never really read what was going on in Augustus's head, we knew he was a decent person, and I don't know, maybe the sheriff is a little bit skeptical or dare I say worried about the fact of how good Augustus is as his job because you know remember he tracked him last week and saw him making that deal with those people and then he had to go and pretend that they were the people who shot Liam um I don't know whether it's to do with that but it is very interesting because the very the start of the episode had us thinking that Augustus knew what he had to do in the situation and he was okay with that but I think the further the episode went on you seen that he actually wasn't okay with that and the gravity of the fact that he killed someone last week who may not have been the guilty party is starting to set in on him. Yeah, because he also makes a point of knowing the people in town. Um, so that ending scene uh, with him and Griffin's girlfriend, the white dove, 
Um, well, first, when Augustus carried himself through the doorway, I was like, I just uh, don't know if you should be the one to give it to her, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so like when she, of course, had a negative reaction to him, his surprise in that moment was interesting because it shifted his idea of how he saw himself in that action. And um, because in his mind, he did what he was supposed to do. He had a runaway um, prisoner um, and he was not on a horse and could not catch him down. So he shot him. But in her mind, um, you should have known that Griffin would never kill somebody. That doesn't make any sense. And um, it's not fair that he's gone. And she just kind of just leaves him there feeling very um, torn to pieces, which in some ways, I I do wonder how that's going to impact him in the next episode. Because anytime another character makes you shift your own perspective on how you see yourself, that usually ends up in a downward spiral, which would be interesting for Augustus, considering he's a lot like Nick from Nancy Drew, where he likes to curate what you um, what you know of him, but he's like even more extreme about it because he's a blank slate. Besides being pleasant, loyal, and um, devoted to justice, mm-hmm. um, but other than that, you don't know anything about him. Yeah, he very much comes off from what we've been told, like the moral compass of the town. And I think that will obviously weigh on him now that because he is starting, I think he's starting to question everything. And like two days ago before the sheriff turned up, he wasn't, he, he, he was comfortable in his role as the deputy. But now between the fact that he was questioned about the fact of why was he passed over for the role of sheriff? And now that the sheriff, he was very happy. He was very happy that the status quo had been returned to the town. We have a new sheriff. We, I'm still happy to do my job as a deputy. He was very happy about that. But ever since this new sheriff turned up, there's been a lot of drama and he's not sure whether he's directly responsible for it. I like the fact that Abby and Hoyt and Callian haven't just like roped uh, the sheriff or the deputy in. They're not, they're not like Augustus follow our plan. He's starting to figure things out for himself on a completely different end. And I like the way I feel like all those stories are like heading towards each other and they'll clash at some point. Very much the way we've seen now with uh, the dynamic between Abby and Kate, those stories are starting to head towards each other. And oh my goodness, that Andy. That ending was great. I didn't expect her to find the firearm. Um, uh, Because I thought she was actually putting the flowers in her own vase, not that she was Mm -hmm. doing something nice for Kate. Yeah, I didn't see that coming at all. But then Kate just totally passed it over. Well, that's funny because I was going to ask you the same thing. It's interesting because we still don't know what kind of role the real Kate will play in the show. She knows that the, the character she is playing knows everything. She's like the busybody who's so helpful and like can tell you everything about everyone. But at the same time, obviously she has her own agenda here. And how does Abby play into that? And can she be a friend or will she end up disrupting that agenda? I think that because that's arguably one of the most pivotal dynamics of the show so far, this is going to be an even more pivotal moment for it because how will it impact it going forward? As much as I've loved the previous episodes, that was arguably my favorite scene because like this is going to upend everything. Kate was being, dare I say, super obvious in, this, in certain scenes where Abby was kind of like, why, why did, how did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> why are you asking? She was like, she, Kate was super helpful in the whole Sullivan sisters debacle. Um, but then she's also she was less um, tactful in this episode than she was in the past. She was kind of like, Kate, reel it it in a little bit. Um, Do do you think that they're going to spill each other's beans to each other next week? Or is, I kind of feel like that's one of the places moving forward. They can either not trust each other or they can fess up and be like, lay all the cards on the table. 
I kind of want them to be tentative about telling each other things, but I also don't want to watch the next episode and she explains it away by independence being a dangerous town. Um, and I said, no, confide in each other. I really like their relationship and I feel like there's only but so long they can do this thing where I, the both of them don't know too much about each other. And I say that because like you said, Reed, uh, Kate was not subtle. Uh, especially when she asked about her sister. And I was like, I don't remember Abby telling you anything about her For a sister. minute, I was like, is Abby fabricating this whole story yeah. about her sister? But I was like, I don't think Abby's a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but this is Sophia Bush. You're not listening. But those CW right. you should be listening. She should play Abby's sister. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, what was I going to say about Kate and Abby? I don't remember. <laughs> Uh, well, I have another point about Kate, though. Um, it has to do with Kate and Kai. Kate is like the de facto mayor, but Kai's got a lot of influence, too. I love the both of them teaming up together to help Abby save the Sullivan sisters store. And they're both like, well, so-and-so isn't doing this because of this. So we're going to have them come work to the store to buy this. And I was like, how do you all know everybody's business? Like the both of you just know everything. Kai's washing the dirty laundry and he knows everybody's dirty laundry. The way he was <laughs> eavesdropping on Kate and Abby's conversation, which I love that scene because it was just like so like modern and normal. They're just like two girls having tea, gossiping. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like 18, whatever. Um, I think he he acts like he doesn't know certain things and he uses that to his advantage to like, mm-hmm. I'm just folding laundry. I can't hear you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to find out more about Kai and mm-hmm. more about what he knows and if he knows about Kate being a federal agent or not. No one else does. It'd be interesting if he is kind of aware of what she's been up to and just hasn't said anything. Just like mm-hmm. he hasn't said that he has feelings for her, which perhaps he will soon. Oh, you know what I was going to say? Um, Abby found out about the land in Texas, right? That Tom Davidson was trying to get from the Sullivan sisters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And isn't Kate like kind of privy to that based on her conversation with the other spy in episode two? So I feel like they could kind of compare notes on that. Yes. They need to work together, be partners. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't have to tell on. everybody every, they don't have to tell each other everything. Like I definitely think Abby should maybe keep her motivations in her corset for now. <laughs> 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 like keep that up your sleeve. Um, but be, you have to, she has to share something with Kate. You have to give her something. Mm. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to see the dynamic going forward because they they were so close and they got so friendly right out of the gate in spite of Abby's reservations about like forming a relationship with anyone. So I can't wait to see where it goes. Like, could could, could this take their friendship to the next level and they both try to take down uh, the sheriff? Or is this very much going to be a case of like Batman versus Superman and I've got my own way of doing it, stay out of my way kind of thing? Power you know, in numbers, yeah. ladies. Yeah, you know. Yes. <laughs> work together um though this their partnership might work as a contrasting point to the partnership between Hort and Callian which um got off to a rocky start I mean not that Callian can help that he's such a great man but Hoyt was not appreciating that since the Reyes family likes Callian and Lucia was definitely looking Hoyt was having a really bad day yeah um it'd probably be in Abby's best interest to have another team member 
on the on the side. Yeah. <laughs> you can't depend on Hoyt. <laughs> that man was just up and down throughout the whole episode and literally up and down off horses and being punched and unconscious. <laughs> he probably had a concussion. <laughs> uh, no, I have to say, I'm obsessed with them too. After that episode, I, when, it, when it started, I was like, didn't we do this last week about them learning to trust each other? And then we're like, we're right back here again. But seeing the two of them go on that adventure together and that Callian come through. And then the fact that Callian made Hoyt see that he was a better person and that Hoyt knew it, but he just ne- always chose the wrong, the wrong side. I think it was, it was a surprisingly pivotal episode for him as a character, even though, like we said, the stakes were somewhat lower than previous episodes. It was nice to see the return of Jacob and the former town he was in and that Hoyt got to like, make the right choice in the end and help Jacob's father by pretending to be the priest one more time. It was, he went through it in that episode. And I'm sure when he woke up that morning, he didn't think he didn't know what he'd be doing by the end of that day, but wow. Well, I mean, he, he, he deserved it. He needed that. He needs mm-hmm. to continue to be bullied into character development. <laughs> <laughs> he does. It is unfortunate though, that like, as he was growing, I think Kylie and it hasn't been growing too, but that, being caring about so many people is causing a problem between Callian and his tribe because mm-hmm. of what they need and like the fact that he missed the meeting because uh, he was trying to get Hoyt out of a sticky situation and then you can't really explain that to one of his elders because he, he, that elder doesn't care like mm-hmm. we needed you in this moment you were the one who wanted to, to schedule the meeting and then you didn't arrive you're not taking care of your responsibilities uh, and it's just, as it all, I mean, Callian's trying his best. He's got some new friends. He's trying to make sure everyone <laughs> is safe. Like, um, he's just, he has a big caring heart. And I wonder if, as we move further into um, season one, whether or not that will continue to be a point of contention between his his people and then um, his the friends that he has in independence. He was very much the hero of his episode. You couldn't help but feel for him afterwards that, obviously uh he felt he was probably left feeling like he'd made the wrong decision but at the end of the day his interests were still in helping his people because at the end he was trying and it was a long it was very like long-winded thing but he was trying to help Hoyt who would then ultimately help them take down the sheriff who is ultimately everyone's problem but this is the thing and that's a very modern story where there are differing views on certain subjects and it's like if you're believe you're hanging around with them you can't be here and your heart's not in it when Callian if there's one thing you can say about Callian his heart is 100% in it it's just unfortunate that not everyone's going to see that right away I know hopefully things get better than not get worse for him (laughs) as as far as like balancing um that um what else about episode three um Oh, it's it seems like each episode is building to create like the bigger world around um independence too. And I do appreciate that we're not just stuck in independence. We got to hope is what Hope Springs. Is that the town that um I think that's right, is it? Uh, it's yeah. an angel. Is it angel? Oh, Angel Springs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Angel Springs. Okay. <laughs> we're angel halfway Springs. There. <laughs> <laughs> and they um and they mentioned Austin. Mm. Uh, and I forget what the context of that was. Uh, um, I believe the, the Walker series, the modern day Walker takes place in Austin. Uh, but it's just interesting that instead of just being stuck in independence, they are, are they are giving us the areas around the town too and how that affects everything. Because a lot of times you kind of just get stuck in the one town and that's all it, that's um, all you see. So it's been nice. I, wonder, I feel like we're going to see some Boston flashbacks 
in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate was really interested in like, where in the East Coast? And Abby was like, East Coast, period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great moment. It's really, it's, she's not elaborating further, Kate. She's like, I, I, I answered your question. So yeah. shut up. Move on, um, drink your tea. I also do want to say I love the show so much and I have to give it up to like the cast and the crew because they are filming outside like that. Mm -hmm. The whole time I'm watching these episodes, I'm like, this cannot be an easy shoot. So when they're being like, they're filming scenes in a a wind tunnel and Abby's hair is going everywhere. I'm like, Kat, you were delivering a performance despite the elements. I was just like, (laughs) I just, I can't get enough of how game all these actors are. And it's just so good. Kudos to that really Mm -hmm. it's so far it's a very solid series and Um, so larger than life and like we're not used to seeing that kind of production on this network it sounds weird to say outdoors but it's not just any outdoors it's like outdoors in those elements in a period piece of all of all things yeah it's awesome to say we need to send them some spf yes they need it they need it okay so moving from um the 1870s to 2019 uh, the nay state, like that's exactly oh, what wow. this, this episode was. There's no other way to quite describe the first half of episode 14 of season one. It was, it had everything, everything it, you could possibly want. I, yeah, Nancy Drew did came for us this week. I wasn't expecting us to get answers. We got answers. The reenactment mm-hmm. was successful so yes. congrats to nancy <laughs> she had some wrong results at first but she got there um but yeah the ace content was just chef's kiss yes. i love that man i love nick too he was giving dad energy in this episode <laughs> and it was wholesome and comforting and i'm just gonna say it kind of hot i'm just gonna say it. <laughs> oh man yes no there was so much going on in the episode and i have to say yes was just a breath of fresh air because we'll get into how heavy the episode was how how like dramatic the episode was um but you see uh there's the whole dynamic with him in the library you know i don't want to go with the right enemies there um like, and, Ace, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> every time he was on screen you just couldn't help but smile and laugh and I think he really endeared himself to Nancy in this episode, which was such such a huge thing. Like, I've never heard that kind of tone from Nancy when he was being playful. It was like, when I was younger, I hacked the library computer so I could, like, keep an eye on everyone's conversation. And she was like, and why did you do that? Never heard that kind of tone from her before. I think she's really, like, intrigued by him and as she learns more about him. And then, of course, there was that really, really, like, there was something there in that moment and um, when he was reading the email it was like I think I love you too and she was just kind of had that like moment where she like looked at him and then he looked at her and then they both quickly looked away it was like if you weren't paying attention beforehand you certainly were now yeah they uh they were here they were definitely Nix was arriving on this episode I thought it was really cool. I love that they introduce it because she's like what's more romantic than solving a homicide together <laughs> uh, and he, with me and then like Laura drops out of the date part way through and so then it's just those two um and you really got to see how like she's always clocking him like she's always interested in finding out more about him and um the, the weird things that he does she's very fond of that and that whole 
Laura, Laura saw some things too because she was looking at both of them as they were interacting. And I was mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, girl, you're not alone. We're all seeing it." <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but it was just I loved that they gave us that like very sweet uh, beginning, even with you know the problems with Patrice and trying to be careful about not setting her off. We still got some very nice sweet content, um, and like you said, Nick being a dad, <laughs> like, I'll pick him up. <laughs> Like, I got this. Don't worry about it. Um, but, and then when we reenact everything, we're, we're right back in the mystery. They remind you this is a supernatural mystery show. We're piecing things together. I think it's adorable that Lucy and Nancy solve cases together. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Lucy is slightly terrifying yes. when she pops up to Nancy and Nancy's just like, hey, girl, <laughs> thanks for that clue. Um I can't believe it all came down to a salad. I know. And it wasn't for Tiffany. Wow. That Happy. that when that realizing realization dropped, like I think I paused. <laughs> they all did. They were all like, wait, I put the salad down. I delivered the salad. I changed the salad to a different plate. They were all like feeling the guilt of like we contributed to this and I wanted to scream at them like no 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 no! don't feel guilty you were taken advantage of and used mm-hmm. as accessories to murder it's not your fault don't feel guilty mm-hmm. I mean you could feel some kind of way but I wanted to just like hug them all in that moment like no 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 no, precious come here my angels <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that it was ace first wasn't he the first one who it dawned on him and he's mm-hmm. been he was such like a force of light in this episode so goofy so laughing and then just for that, I think that was the moment it all sat in because you could just like sense as the tone dropped and then it shifted to Bess and she did this and then it shifted to Nancy and she did that. And then it was George, of course, who thought at the start, well, I set these events in motion by walking out or leaving that salad dressing there. And they were so, bless them, they were so ready to solve this murder in that first moment. And when they set this up and then they realized that they were involved in it, even though, of course, they weren't responsible, but like the emotions that episode made you feel for them. So now we know that it was Lucy's brother that was trying to kill Ryan for mm-hmm. Lucy's death, but he, the salad gate happened and Tiffany got the salad. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. It's just really funny that it's a salad. Um, and then he disappeared after he was electrocuted after trying to kill Nancy, which I was like, oh, I can't believe Nancy had to watch another death, but you know. And a horrible one. That was really horrible mm. death she watched yeah. that man's skin fry like yeah chicken skin and then it lingered on him afterwards just to show us you see the body and then no of course it will, he's, he's gone after that because why yeah, would he, i'm like why, did yeah. lucy take him i don't know there's so much more to this story because i'm like where does ryan fit in who killed lucy we don't know that right we don't and i think this episode pretty much said not him because that scene between him and Nancy where he's like, I didn't kill her. Like, yeah, because he was like, I didn't write that one email. And I kind of believed him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nancy doesn't. But I was like, okay, so who hacked into your email? And then who deleted that email? To well, and it was, they were still waiting to find out, to like ge- geolocate where the device was at the time, correct? But she went to go look. Um, no, Ace, Ace had hacked for her. And he mm-hmm. was waiting for the information to come back. And we didn't get that information by the end of the episode. She didn't get to go into the computer. That's when Josh was, you know, mm-hmm. did his business. <laughs> did his business. And I got a little juice and crumb because Nick was the one who sat with her 
<laughs> in the ambulance. Though I think he was there because that was his boss, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> what an episode. What an episode. I know. They, they keep getting better and better. Mm. I know on one hand, you're like, if they've gone past the 13 episode mark, how long can they extend the story for? But then they go and pull an episode like that. And you're like, I never want the story to end. It was so good. And they're, they, they've ripped back so many layers. This is probably the most important episode of the season so far. And they've peeled back so many layers of the mystery. And yet there is still so much to tell. I say, I say to you every week, I, my, my least favorite part of the episode is when the credits roll. Cause I'm like, oh, I have to wait for more, for more of this one. And I, here we are again. Wild. Very wild. We have three more episodes. Why can't I do four? Four. Mm -hmm. Okay, four more episodes. And it's already heating up, literally. So I just don't, I cannot wait to find out more because I didn't see Josh being the one. I didn't Mm -hmm. see it, nor did I see Solid Gate. That is not how (laughs) I thought that poison (laughs) happened. But Nancy's asking the real questions because she said he doesn't have the budget to get that type of poison. (laughs) So who gave it? This is true. I don't think we're gonna have we're gonna have peace for the rest of the season. So I'm mentally preparing for just high octane pedals to the metal until the finale. <laughs> yes, with a little side of romance, because even um Fanson got a little bit. Mm. Oh yeah, Bess was like, "What are we waiting for?" Yeah, George, just, to- just do it. <laughs> Capitalize on that. And but I was like, like, I was like, Bess, maybe I, there's a conversation that needs to happen before George and Nick can, yeah. you know, really go for it. I was like, Bess, don't be messy. <laughs> Heart's in the right place, but there's some mess that is attached with that. <laughs> yeah, she just skipped over the how awkward it would be at first. She's like, they broke up. It's like, it's been what, two weeks? Let's. <laughs> and it's not like it's just somebody, it's Nancy. Like, you need to talk to Nancy. And she already had that kind of like mild freak out when she was like, you bought the claw, you're right. working together. So there needs to be, when things settle down, which will be never, they need to talk to Nancy. <laughs> yes. And Bess needs to do her own talking with Elizabeth because I don't know mm-hmm. why we were texting Amaya about the situation instead of your actual girlfriend. But you yeah, know. Glass house is best. <laughs> yes. George got her together though. She was like, this is not the correct behavior. <laughs> but anyway, more Nancy coming soon. I was, I have a terrible time not just, pressing next so i can watch you're right yeah especially this one yeah yeah uh but that wraps what we're watching uh just a little note to cw send us weekly episodes for things that has nothing to do with nancy because we're still trying to catch up but you know by the time we get to uh, like on par with nancy weekly nancy episodes dropped in the inbox for the screeners would be lovely help us help you Yep. Yes. We want to cover your shows. I want to give <laughs> weekly monologues about Stargirl in advance. I promise you I'll do that. <laughs> so, Mole, take that note back. I really hope the Mole has like a notepad. Well, no, one of those big lethal pads because we have a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the Mole uh, has homework every week. <laughs> yes, yes. And he, he, he comes through. He comes through. This mm-hmm. is true. He's a good success rate. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of this arrow pod. Congratulations to the 10th anniversary. We are the CW Spiral. I'm Sabrina. I'm Michael. And I'm Reed. Bye, y'all. <laughs>